Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, I'm joined here with the other Show Me the Meaning dudes. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Austin. Hey, hey. So today we're breaking down the 1983 film written and directed by David Cronenberg, Videodrome, starring James Woods and Deborah Harry, a.k.a. Blondie. Ugh. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get some first impressions. Let's start with Ryan. Um, well, <laughs> I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Me and Jared really fucking love it. We've talked about it a million, a, a lot over the years. Uh, so first impressions, I was, I saw this way too young when I was like 13, really getting into movies and stuff. And I was trying to check out every weird director out there. And I remember seeing this and totally just like, it didn't really blow my mind as much as just, it kind of freaked me out. And, and I, and I definitely was too young to really understand it. Um, uh, cause it's a very strange, cerebral, hallucinatory, psychedelic film almost. And, uh, then watching it this time was honestly one of the best times I've watched it. Cause oh, cool. I, I, I've seen it since then several times but but yeah just kind of in preparation for this podcast just watching it just being like wow this movie's just every second of this is so weird and odd but like fits together in a really logical way but also has you know it's uh, there's a lot for you to think uh, think about uh, you know what it's trying to say and yeah i'm excited to talk about it Cool. A plus 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 plus. <laughs> cool. All right. How about you, Austin? Uh, yeah. Apparently, I didn't remember anything about this movie because for me, it was like the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, I think I saw it maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago or something like that. And I must have just remembered something completely different. And um, I thought it was it was a really fresh experience to watch it. And this movie... I, like it was hard. Like after I watched it, I didn't sleep last night. I watched it at say midnight <laughs> and then I stayed up till three or four in the morning, like writing things and like reading articles and like reading philosophy and ideas. Like I was reading like Marshall McLuhan and then I was reading this philosopher named Jacques Ranciere. I'm sure we can talk about all this stuff later, but um, I was like, oh my God, like all of these ideas were flooding into my mind as I was watching this. So philosophically, conceptually, it's super interesting. But beyond that, David Cronenberg is just fucking awesome, man. Like yeah. as as a filmmaker, like I, there was one scene where where it, where it hit me that he was such a masterful filmmaker. It was the scene where um, James Woods' character Max burns, or I'm sorry, uh, Debbie Harry's character. What, what's her name? Is it Nikki? Nikki. She burns herself. Nikki with Brand. A yeah, Nikki. So she burns herself with a cigarette, and then he's like kind of horrified by it. And then you sort of see that maybe he does actually give into it at the end because it kind of like fades to black when she's obviously she's pulling down her bra strap and kind of enticing him. And then the very next scene, he's at lunch with that older woman, and she lights up her cigarette, and the camera just focuses like an extreme close up on the uh, the end of the cigarette that's sort of lit up, and you see his response. And I just thought, oh my god, the sort of visceral connection between the last scene and this. It just, it affected me so much. And I was like, this dude knows how to fucking make a movie. He knows yeah, how to dude. affect an audience. So I think it's brilliant, man. Um, and it's one of those films that I'm I'm disappointed that, I mean, I'm glad I watched it, but I'm disappointed that I hadn't paid more attention to it over the last couple of years because I think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, that's actually great to hear. Um, I was actually wondering what Austin was going to think about it because I think this is a, a definitely the first time in this podcast that we've done a, a, a straight horror movie, a body horror movie. I guess you can consider you Old call Boy. this a straight horror movie? Uh, well, definitely body a body horror, horror movie. Definitely what, body horror. How, yeah. What would you call it? I mean, I don't know what to call it. Like, <laughs> I would, if someone was like, hey, what's a good horror movie to watch? I wouldn't say, oh, man, Videodrome is a straight well, up Well, I mean, movie. I, I'm always having this conversation with people, the difference between horror and, like, American horror. Most people are brought up in America to believe that horror means, like, jump scares. Right. Like, I know what you did last summer, Scream, stuff like that. Yeah, it means, it means a bunch of teenagers getting killed one by one. Right, but that's a very American thing. Okay. Uh, which going. we're all Americans here. Anyway, uh, so for me... Strangely enough, I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. Mm. Um, I It might have been in college. I remember that the hardest class I ever took in college was a class called Asian Horror Film. And although we did not, shout out to Professor Gopalan, who was the meanest, strictest <laughs> teacher I ever had. She was not afraid to call out people in the middle class, call them fucking morons. <laughs> and I have one thing to say to her. And that is thank you. <laughs> we need more teachers like you. Uh, we never actually watched this movie in the class, but we would talk about it a lot um, as kind of this artifact for some other themes that we were talking about in the class as far as like the uh, uh, technology fetishisms and uh, the technology as an extension of the human body and all that stuff. And so I've seen the movie a couple times. I was really excited when this came out on Criterion Blu-ray and I bought it. And uh, Marshall McLuhan is somebody that uh, we've actually never talked about on any of our Wisecrack videos. What? And so I actually took... 
I know it's no crazy. Way. So I it's because I think most well, I don't know. So you have you tell me, Austin, you well, first of all, let me back up. So the reason we're talking about this uh, media, he's called a media prophet, but he's not necessarily a philosopher. He never called himself a philosopher, is this Canadian guy named Marshall McLuhan, who famously said that the medium is the message. And essentially, the character Brian Oblivion in this movie is a stand-in for McLuhan. And so that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this movie, because there's a very wisecrack element to it. It's rare that there is a theorist that is an actual, or there's a character that's actual stand-in for a philosophical Mm -hmm. theorist. Uh, So that's why I was really excited to talk about this movie. So I actually read a book in preparation for this podcast called Understanding Me, which is a play off of McLuhan's most famous book called Understanding Media. And if you guys are interested in any of the ideas that we talk about during this podcast, I really recommend the book because uh, as I was explaining in our Rick and Morty podcast earlier this week, this book is a collection of interviews and lectures, which is, I think, a great way to learn about, uh, for the layman, uh, to learn about this philosophy, because understanding media, the real book, is very hard to understand, Mm. at least for me. Um, Real quick, Austin, I'm curious, in your, like, formative philosophical education, did you learn about McLuhan at all? Because none of the other writers that we work with, you know, it's it's been a very kind of distant thing of media studies that philosophy departments don't seem to dip into. It depends on where you do philosophy. If you study philosophy in America, you're probably right, because they tend to focus on there's a divide in philosophy that's poorly termed, but uh, it's a split between what's sometimes called analytic philosophy or Anglo-American philosophy and then continental philosophy. And in continental departments, you will verge or veer into media studies a little bit. Now, I never did. uh, I never took a class on media studies, and my research isn't really directly about media studies per se, although I do a lot of work on the imagination. So I guess uh, tangentially, his name has popped up kind of quite often in in my studies. But I never was like instructed to read McLuhan. I never had him on a syllabus in undergrad and any of my master's degree courses, anything like that. So, and then obviously PhD research, it was just focused because in the UK, the way they do it is you don't take classes, you just write your dissertation or they call it a thesis. So I never actually was introduced to him except through my own readings, um, like readings on blogs. Um, there's a guy named Ian Bogost, Bogost, B-O-G-O-S-T. I don't know how you'd say his last name, but he's like a, a media theorist, video game theorist guy. And I think uh, he's talked about McLuhan on his blog that back in the day in like 2010 when the blogosphere actually was something. Um, and he talked about him a lot in various other people kind of that were related to that. But no, like it's not something you would be exposed to unless you were taking a media studies course or... I I guess unless you kind of like saw his name in a footnote and you decided to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, so Ryan and I went to film school together. Ryan, do you remember this name popping up in our education? Yeah, definitely. But it was very, very surface level. Well, I mean, yeah, we didn't, I don't remember reading Understanding Media, but I definitely remember the, the, the medium is the message and reading about McClume and stuff. Okay, cool. So other than that, I, I don't want I don't want this whole podcast to be about McLuhan, but we will be ta- uh, diving into that a little bit. But yeah. just in terms of Cronenberg as a filmmaker, I think that his films really capture a very precise tone that you don't see in other things. Every time I watch this movie, I love the synth yeah. soundtrack that really captures mm. me. I think, I mean, of course, the uh, Rick... Rick Baker effects are, of course, timeless Absolutely. and amazing to, mm-hmm. to behold. Um, practical effects, and, man. People need to get back to practical effects, you know? I mean, special I effects are amazing, but um, I've had the pleasure of working with uh, a Scottish filmmaker by the name of Andy Stewart, who is a huge Cronenberg fan, and all of his movies are just loaded with practical effects. And I think it just gives such a gritty feel to to the visual image that special effects sometimes miss, you know? Yeah. So uh, before I go into the recap, I just want to say that uh, one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk about this is that McLuhan is more relevant than ever today because what he, you know, he was theorizing, he died in 1979 and he talked, he theorized mostly in the era of television through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And what sounded like abstract ideas back then are now becoming very apparent. So it's he's like one of the most interesting theorists to revisit today in our age of the internet. Hey, and before we get into the recap, just want to remind you guys that the next movie we're going to be doing is Mean Girls. So that's going to be coming out next week. So uh, we will put in the description ways that you can watch it, ways that you can stream it so you can watch along with us. So join us next week for the 2000, I'm going to get this wrong, 2003, 2004 Tina Fey movie, Mean Girls. So anyway, before we dive in, let me just give you guys a recap. 
So, Max Wren, head of a subversive late-night channel, is bored with the same old sex and violence peddled by every smut dealer in town. He's looking for something bold. So he turns to his employee-slash-pirate-of-the-airwaves Harlan, who unscrambles something truly disturbing. Footage of a woman being tortured in front of a clay wall by masked men in all black. It's called Videodrome. While on a talk show, Max gets a date with a radio personality named Nikki Brand. She comes back to his apartment that night, and they have SNM sex while watching Videodrome. These encounters escalate in intensity until eventually Nikki leaves town to try to be on the show. Max inquires further about Videodrome to one of his oldest clients, but she tells him to stay away because it's not a show. It's real snuff TV, and it has a philosophy. Max won't listen, so she tells him to seek out Professor Brian Oblivion, the famous media prophet, to learn more. Max meets Brian's daughter, Bianca, who sends him a video message from her father that says watching Videodrome gave him a brain tumor that led to hallucinations and eventually death. Max then hallucinates the TV pulsating like a bodily organ and seeing Nikki on the TV starts to make out with it. Later, a giant orifice forms in his stomach. (laughs) The next night, Max is chaperoned to meet eyewear tycoon Barry Convex, who later reveals that he's working with Harlan to deliberately expose Max to Videodrome in an effort to use his smut channel to kill all his viewers who get off on torture and murder. Convex puts a VHS tape inside Max's orifice, which programs him to kill his partners and Bianca Oblivion. But Bianca gets the upper hand when she reveals that Convex was her father's partner who killed him and Nikki Brand. She then reprograms Max to kill Barry Convex by inserting a new VHS, making him, in her words, the video word made flesh. Death to Videodrome, long Long live live the the new new flesh. (laughs) So under his new programming, Max kills Harlan, Barry Convex, and has one last moment with Nikki through a TV screen. She then tells him death is not the end and that he should leave behind his body and join her in the next phase of human life. So he kills himself, but not before saying, long live the new flesh. (laughs) So is a sick man dead, or did Max leave his body behind to experience the next step in human evolution. The second one. Mm. End of movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's dive in. Um, so before we get to the McLuhan stuff, or should we just go right to that? Is that the most interesting thing? Is there other stuff you guys want to talk about? I mean, I've got some other stuff. Let's go uh, into your first ship. Go into your first ship. All right, my first question is, I, I know this is a really broad question to start this with, but what is this movie about? <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, I wanted you to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, like I, there, there are a lot of levels here. So I think yeah. first it's a struggle between two radical factions and and our character Max Wren is stuck in the middle. There's Barry Convex and Harlan who see television as a means of desensitization that leads people to seek stimulation and watching torture and murder and therefore those people need to be wiped away because it's making humanity into horrible people. Yeah. And then on the other hand there's Brian and Bianca Oblivion who believe that television especially violent imagery on television and its unique ability to stimulate us is proof of a breakthrough in human neural development and thus the next stage in human evolution. It's essentially like a cult of accelerationism mm-hmm. of yeah. like, you know, we're, we're using the effect of violence and media to bring humanity to the next level. And Max is basically just stuck in the middle between these two warring factions. So that's just like it distilled on a very basic level. Um, another thing I like about this is it, it seems to be like it's like a, it's a story of two overstimulated people. So Max Wren is so desensitized by regular smut, he's looking for something tougher, and then he finds Videodrome. And then something I noticed in this read, in this viewing, is that Nikki is this radio personality who very coldly and almost like in a fake manner coaches people through emotional distress all day so that, she, like, she, you know, the one time you see her on her talk show, she's almost talking somebody through this freak out with her sister, like uh-huh. it seems like she's almost talking her from the ledge, right? Uh, and so she too cannot feel anything unless it's brutal and extreme. And then there's that conversation with them on the talk show. But she's quite gentler about it too. You know, she doesn't have the smut edges RoboCop does, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it's yeah, kind of well, like, that, well, like that, you're saying it's too. That's the character people. that she plays, being very soft about it. But I, th- I find it's interesting when we visually see her on the radio show. She's seems very detached uh-huh. from this person yeah. that she's supposedly helping. And then she's wanting to get off on, you know, uh, S&M and 
all that other weird oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she gets wild. Well, she she admits it uh, on that talk show where she says, listen, we're all overstimulated and we've all got this problem. And then James Woods res- responds to her as, well, then why are you wearing that dress? Which I thought was really interesting considering certain debates that we're having in the United States at, at this time as well. There were some very interesting male-female relations. He walks by a, uh, an intern in the hall at one point and he grabs her butt. And I was like, huh. Interesting. You could not get away with that in a movie today. But um, yeah. But so there's some interesting stuff in terms of like uh, gender relations as well. But he says, so why are you wearing that dress? And she admits it. Rather than kind of like coming back with a quip, she says, well, because I too am, you know, I need that over. I- I'm overstimulated as well. So she needs the shock as well. So she kind of admits it, that she needs so tradi- to be awoken from her slumber. So Austin, traditionally, I would not go down this path. But something entered my mind in that scene too, where he grabs the intern or, or whatever. Maybe she's a... a just a low-level worker's butt. Yeah. So, I mean, usually I wouldn't talk about something that's controversial like this. Right. Um, but, you know, when I was reading the McLuhan book, McLuhan talks a lot about, about the electronic age, and he says, we today in the electronic age are all as primitive or bewildered as any Eskimo ever was when he mm-hmm. first saw the first railway train. Our ability to cope with this new electric technology is not any greater than that. And, and sometimes when I think, like, yeah, people say oh man, this movie was made in 1983 and he grabbed her butt, that's morally reprehensible. If I lived in more in 1983, I wouldn't stand for that. I mean, I think that's like, like that kind of disposition is like blaming a caveman for not being able to build a plane. Mm. You know, be- yes. be- because part of, like one of the essential things about McLuhan's work you're is- not, You're not taking the context into uh, well, the right, historical but, context. But of one of the things that, that reading McLuhan really highlighted for me is that these version, these mediums, whether it be television, the internet, they create new environments that change people. And it's this environment that changes the people, not necessarily the technology. And uh, we now have information that essentially is happening simultaneously. And so we're able to learn things extremely quickly and we're able to just develop as human beings at a higher rate and at a like un- incomprehensible rate. And so we're for- products of technology. Right. And to say that, uh, Basically, we're just like rag dolls, and technology is pushing us into a a direction of what one may call progress. But it has nothing to do with our will. Like we are not willing right. ourselves or to a so, more uh, noble state. Right. So I think if I can try to maybe uh, elaborate on what you're saying, I think a lot of times people view there, there's something this idea of human essentialism that there is such a thing as like the autonomous human entity, and that technology is something separate too. It's something that we will or something that we autonomously choose to help us advance to these higher levels, but that it is something external to us. It's not part and parcel of us. Whereas what this film explores most centrally, I think, is the intimate co-constitutive relation between the technologies that exist, quote unquote, outside of us and our the, the, the conscious bodies that we live. And so really what you get is a sort of a type of cyborg theory. So it isn't that, the, or an extended mind theory um, as well, that that we are connected to our technologies, that our technologies are part of us. They are they are literal ex, they are literal extensions of our bodies. That when you hold a cell phone in your hand, that isn't something that is a complete separate entity, but rather it is part of the very consciousness that you live, or that the consciousness that you are, not the consciousness that you have. Because even using that language of having consciousness implies that there's a distinction between consciousness and then the self, but rather the consciousness that you are is intertwined with the technology that we use. Um, And maybe even that is too much of a distinction, but I think what this film is doing is it's trying to blur that distinction between the the technologies that that, that, that relate to us in a symbiotic relation um, that, that is something that we don't really talk about so much because we tend to think of us as just being these, you know, uh, individual entities that are separate from and we can progress on our own and technology is just simply a tool. But it's not simply a tool. It is part of us. It is it is the manifestation of us. And they talk about, what is it, the video become flesh? Is that the term that yeah. they use? Um, and that's that idea is, is, is that he has become the video. So not only is technology the sort of, um, expression of an idea, but the body then becomes an expression of the expression, right? The expression of the idea that that is sort of like you project it into the technology, but then the technology introjects it back into your body. And so there is this dual, maybe a dialectical, symbiotic co-constituting, as in they create each other um, with neither having priority, with neither having uh, like uh, preeminence. Um, and I think that's what this film is really trying to kind of explore. And it's it's totally fascinating because it totally transforms the way we tend to think about the relation between human and non-human. 
And there's that whole line, I think that's another, a, a key to kind of what you're saying too, is, is when I think it's a, a Dr. Oblivion is like <clears throat> in the TV and says, you know, perception is reality, right? And uh, uh, nothing's real. And I think that's kind of, yeah, like, like pretty much what you're just saying and what, what Cronenberg's whole thesis is, is <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the impli- perception is, yeah. Yeah. And the implications of that are, okay, so if that's the case, if we don't have this autonomous will to just create things as we want and progress to the next stage of evolution, but if in fact the technologies that we create actually create us in return, then what does that mean? How how are we created? What are the effects of technologies? What technologies have what effects, et cetera, et cetera? These are the types of questions that that this type of more rather than having a dualist mindset, it's maybe more of a monist mindset where everything is kind of on the same ontological plane is what we would say in philosophical circles. But that that, that if, if that's the case, what are the implications of that for how we structure ourselves socially and politically and ethically, et cetera? So I think that I can distill what we're talking about here uh, using two quotes, one from Brian Oblivion and one from Marshall McLuhan. So uh, Brian Oblivion says, and by the way, I love this actor. And just the the, the timbre yeah. of his voice is just so hypnotizing. <laughs> he says, The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, television is reality, and reality is less than television. So I'm going to relate this to a McLuhan quote. Uh, McLuhan said, just as the wheel was an extension of the human foot and the axe was an extension of the arm, electric media is an extension of the human central nervous system. And these nervous systems will be brought together in an irresistible way. And I think that it's this this nugget of McLuhanism that that is embodied by Brian Oblivion and Bianca Oblivion. And, they're, and I think that it's so awesome because Cronenberg is basically taking this nugget and taking it to the extreme with his body <laughs> horror aesthetic yeah. and literalizing it and making something that's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, well, we also have to remember that McLuhan was a Catholic. He was a conservative yes. Catholic. And so when he talks about this new shift towards you know the emergence of what would then become the internet, obviously he died before it was in full swing. But, um, you know, the, this this shift in media technology, he's looking at it as a classics professor. I mean, he was a trained classical scholar who's kind of bemoaning, if you will, the decline of, of certain forms of social communication. And he's, he's very critical of this, whereas David Cronenberg is a straight up secular, self-avowed existentialist, atheist. So, you know, he's going to have a bit more of a sort of nihilistic take on all of this. So... There's actually this other guy, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, named Tailhard, T-E-I-L-H-A-R-D. Are you familiar with him, Austin? What's his first name? I don't, I actually didn't write that down. Okay. Anyway, this is a guy who came slightly before McLuhan that I was reading about, and uh, I just want to read one more quote, and then we'll we'll stop quoting academics. <laughs> uh, so he says, We may think that these technologies are artificial and completely external to our bodies, but in fact they are part of the natural, profound evolution of our nervous system. Hmm. We may think that we are only amusing ourselves by using them, or only developing our commerce, or only spreading ideas, but in reality we are quite simply continuing on to a higher plane by other means the uninterrupted work of biological evolution. So I think this is spot on with what Cronenberg is doing by actually making, when you watch the Videodrome signal, it actually manifests as a mass in your brain, a new organ. And mm. I want to tr- I want to transition this to the sexualization of technology because it's not only that television creates new organs or that television is portrayed as an organ, but it's a sexual organ. And I think that he has he has uh, some more fun with this that in a way that McLuhan never really spoke about. Uh, but so, for example, Max's orifice in which he loses his gun and later he's used to program VHS. It looks like a vagina. And then when the TV is breathing and like veins are popping out of it um, and Max is making out of it, there is a sense of sexualizing technology and not only depicting technology as an extension of the body, as an actual physical body, but as a sexual organ. I mean, this film is a psychoanalyst's dream, right? There's mm-hmm. so much weird explorations of desire and libido and intimacy and sex and violence and all of this stuff kind of swirling together. Um, I mean, there's it's it's a it's a clusterfuck, if you will, of of just all of these crazy concepts that are coming together. So, 
I mean, I don't know, Ryan, what uh, what do you have to think about the sex and violence of the world of Videodrome? I, well, less about the, taking a step back, like less about the sex, but more in terms of like it creating a new organ. I mean, that's kind of what uh, um, to me editing is what I do every day. You know, like everyone understands cuts inherently but no one was taught it's not like everyone like when they watch tv knows about editing techniques but when you see you know a cut from a wide shot to a close-up you know to, you understand what's going on it, it kind of becomes part of your perception like dr oblivion is and you're kind of making people you're thinking for people in a way or or, or you're at least you know presenting you know what, what you want them to see um so yeah I, the, just the whole idea of of that being a that transcending our you know normal human experience and that yeah it's kind of like a a, a, a new body part that that uh, what didn't exist before there was you know TV and screens everywhere and stuff like that whole idea I definitely see in my own life basically um, but the whole in terms of the sex like I definitely remember in film school Jared you know like there was lots of these media studies classes that talked about you know the old movies and the, the sexual tension between cuts and how just the act of cutting is violence. You know, uh, I think another kind of philosophical companion piece to this movie is a, a movie that I know Ryan has seen. Austin, have you ever seen Tetsuo the Iron Man? Oh, hell yeah. I love that movie. No, I've never seen it. Okay. It's pretty bizarre. It's, it, it's very surreal, very hard to kind of discern a narrative, but there actually is one. But it's about a guy who is a technology fetishist. The opening scene of the movie is actually him cutting open his leg and putting a piece of steel in it as a sexual act that turns him on. And then basically, spoiler alert, the end of the movie is these two people kind of merging and creating a new body they basically become this giant metallic tank like thing mm. that is the next evolution in humanity and i think that um there is this kind of sense of biological urges that uh i think that perhaps there's some sort of commentary and I, i'm not an evolutionary biologist by any means but i do believe that just as our sexual desires propel us to uh, continue to propagate the human race and stuff like that. I think that there's some sort of commentary on how uh, sex is essentially a tool that humanity will use to go to the next level. And so I think that when we see that the next stage of human evolution is an extension of our bodies is a technological thing rather than, you know, us getting taller or, or you know, necessarily our right. brains getting more developed, there is a sense that there's almost this sexual union between us and our technology. And I think that it's explored in this movie in a really interesting way. I mean, that scene where he's making out with uh, Nikki Brand in the television, mm. he sticks his head in and, and the, the television is pulsating and is veiny like it's a fucking dick or something yeah. is so good. <laughs> How the fuck did they do that? How did Rick Baker do that? Anyone, any guesses? You know, the fact that I don't know is what makes Rick Baker amazing. You know, like yeah. like that. that's why no matter what you see today in any Marvel movie or any special effects driven movie is not amazing or it doesn't really uh, inspire Lots. us like these Rick Baker effects do because yeah. we just know that it's all the same CGI process. It's basically just a paintbrush on a piece of celluloid or digital right. or whatever. Lots of hours with body casts and with silicone and various other latex and things that actors don't like to do, but that look really cool once they're on screen. Um, I, I have a question. You know, they, 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 the old woman that he's friends with says that Videodrome and the people that run it have a philosophy that he doesn't have. What do y'all interpret that line to mean? Well, I think there's the two separate philosophies. So if we're to believe that Videodrome was made well, by both Barry Convex and Brian Oblivion, once again, Brian Oblivion's philosophy is that because violence and sex in media opens up our brain receptors more, it allows for the Videodrome signal to enter the brain more efficiently, for that new organ to be created into the brain, and for us to reach the next stage of human evolution. So that's what I think the, the Brian Oblivion philosophy is. Uh, in in terms of what exactly she's referring to, I think it's a little unclear. But then the Barry Convex philosophy is that we use the Videodrome signal to basically uh, met out the disgusting human beings that need to be eradicated from the earth. Because if you get off on Videodrome, then fuck you. You're allowed. You should have a brain tumor and die. Yeah. Well, well, but wasn't he also like trying to put it out to more people? Like it seemed like he was trying to get a, go more mainstream with it. So it's not like uh, you mean Barry Convex. Yeah, yeah. He, he, the the plan was that. 
they took uh, Civic TV, which is the name uh-huh. of Max Ren's channel, which only appeals to what you could call scumbags, you know, okay. like, like, and yeah. then they take, which is why Max kills his partners, because now Max is the sole owner, and then Barry Convex can use Max to broadcast Videodrome to all the watchers of Civic TV, and those watchers of Civic TV are the people who get off on sex and violence, and they all deserve to die, and so then... They'll get gotcha. the brain tumor, etc. I think it's a really interesting choice that you don't see in a lot of movies in which pretty much like halfway through the movie, our protagonist stops making choices because he really does become a pawn of these two different philosophies that are hard enough to just discern on their own. Yeah. And so through most of the movie, you're just like, is this a hallucination? Is it not? I'm so captivated by the imagery and the tone and the sound and the and the score that right. I'm just in this like sense of dread and mm-hmm. and uh unease that I and it's also an only 90 minute movie it's very tight so I I, I think that's another reason why it's super interesting well well also uh, about that what is I mean this is probably something that we there's no answer to but like like when when the uh when these optic when, when the eyeglasses guy shoves the 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 gross zombie videotape into his um chest vagina mm-hmm. um what do you think is happening in real life in real reality because that is supposed to be a hallucination right I mean what yeah, I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. Like, there's. I, I think it's deliberate. Like the the line between reality and hallucination yeah. has been deliberately obliterated. And then, and then, same thing with Blondie, though. Like, did they ever meet? Because right. wasn't she? Didn't she? She she was she was killed on the show to hypnotize him, basically, right? She, like, because that's what Miss Oblivion says. Oh, no, I think they they met in real. At what point are you asking if they met? Ever well, is the question. Like, so ever. it says yeah, at the end that it, she was killed by... She was killed to lure you into the Videodrome plot. Right, so maybe she was know? just a hallucination that, like, sort of incepted his mind from the outset and that he never actually met her on that talk show to begin with. I mean, I think that once you start, like, getting bogged down in these questions... I, I personally, I just don't find them as as interesting. I get it, and I think people are going to debate, like, okay, so at what point does reality switch into the hallucinations, right? I think the more yeah. interesting way, for, from my perspective, to, in, to, to watch this kind of film is to see it as a sort of dystopian parable, almost. And that um, the, the, the desire to separate reality from fantasy is precisely the thing that Cronenberg is trying to deconstruct. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I, I totally agree with you. I, it's more just thinking about the, the, the inner logic of the movie. No, and I get you. Trying to parse together. No, because yeah. I, I asked the same question. And and I'm not saying like you're a, that's a bad analysis or something, Ryan. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying once that thought comes into our minds, because it came into my mind too, then that's when we need yeah. to kind of catch ourselves and say, oh, wait a second, that's precisely the thing. And, and that's when it becomes interesting to sort of like even analyze our own tendency and our own need mm-hmm to try to seek reality rather than allowing the sort of play of fiction or the play of images to just saturate us and 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 challenge us because that's really what this film does more than anything i think is is you have a guy in Max who is tired of the social order the social order is like you know i mean this is 1980s reagan and uh well, it's Canada, but um, you know they're they're getting a transmission from America, right, in Pittsburgh. But so it's like the the rise of neoliberalism and the emergence of the sort of um, uh, this shift towards conservative towards conservatism. You got Thatcher in the UK, you got Reagan in America, and then the sort of repercussions of that. So you've got like a sort of shift towards conservatism, and it's like the video nasties were going on in the eighties at this time as well in the UK, where there was a lot of issues about censorship, and so. Um, I think what this film is doing is it's really sort of deconstructing the social order and saying all of this stuff that we're afraid of, the smut and the violence and sex and how that's kind of opposed to conservatism and traditional family values and being an upstanding citizen and not harming people. And what Cronenberg's doing is he's sort of like deconstructing that bifurcation as such to kind of release, if you will, these different creative flows, which is what ultimately leads to this idea of long live the, the new flesh is is that you kind of tear down the old the old symbolic order and allow for the emergence of something new, some new flesh. Um, and I think flesh, again, can be used metaphorical because it doesn't mean like skin on our bodies necessarily, like epidermis. Um, it can mean the, the new body or the new ontological reality or the new symbolic order or the new social order or something like that. And so I think for me, that's what's so interesting about this film is to read it from that perspective. And it's a dystopian tale. Of, of showing the sort of pitfalls of 
of uh, of certain types of connections with media. Not not saying that media is bad or that technology is bad, but saying certain tendencies within media can be bad under certain conditions. Yeah, I just want to touch on the uh, metaphorical nature of uh, once again technology as flesh or developments that technology or how technology propels us, and it is kind of metaphorically fresh. There's some great po- great parts. I love it when Bianca Oblivion gets the upper hand on Max. Uh, the TV basically grows flesh and then, like, shoots him, and then he gets shot, but then the the television screen basically grows a stomach, and you see the body holes there. There's all sorts of really mm-hmm. awesome stuff like that. But um, I want to go move, and this is based on what you were saying, Austin. I want to move to the ending. Mm. How do we read the... There seems to be, at least when I saw it earlier, I was very tempted to read the ending and how Vicky, or I'm sorry, Nikki shows him, hey, this is what you're going to do. And then he sees the image on the TV screen, mm. which is essentially the last shot of the movie. And then he basically does it. And it's very tempting to read this as, oh, they're saying that television turns us all into monkey see, monkey do kind of people. Mm. Um, I'm curious, how, you know, how do you read that ending? And how do yeah, what is your reaction to what I just said? So uh, there is a a term coined by Jean-Paul Sartre called seriality that I think describes this film. And really, I can't help but see this everywhere because I've just spent years researching it. But um, seriality is the um, social experience of alienation as humans' relations are mediated uh, by language, by technology, by the material environment, whatever. So like right now, we're mediated obviously through the digital medium, but we're also mediated through the use of language, which means that there is no such thing as immediate connection, right? So all of our social relations are mediated, um, which makes sense. The word media obviously fits into this as well, right? Um, But so I think that what this film really explores uh, in an interesting way, and I think it kind of fits into this end bit, is the way in which... We're so mediated that our relations are overdetermined by external objects, which means that our autonomy doesn't exist. That doesn't mean we don't have agency, but it means we don't have autonomy. So when you see uh, Max acting out the thing that he then will eventually act out himself, it isn't simply saying that we are like automatons and that our lives are, or however you just put it a minute ago. How did you put it, Jared? That kind of like that that uh, monkey see, monkey do. Monkey see, monkey do. It's not monkey see, monkey do per se, but it kind of is. It's kind of like um, it's monkey see, monkey do without negating your agency. So it's an overdetermination. He chooses to do it. Yeah, he still chooses to do it. Exactly. And I think well, that's what does he? I mean, he, he literally has a a VHS tape that essentially programs him that has been put into his orifice twice. Sure. I think it's it's hard to really discern where the choice starts and ends. Well, and this goes down but to the issue But then he did of, just have that phone call, though. He had that phone call with his secretary or whatever that it seemed like he was kind of coming to grips with his situation, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell. Well, and this yeah. goes to the heart of, of the problem of freedom versus determinism, right? can you still have freedom within conditions that are not of your own choosing? And I would argue that that's what freedom actually is. I, I don't buy the idea of libertarian freedom. I know Ryan and I could go head to head at this one forever since he has his libertarian one leanings, day. but I, I don't one buy day. the idea of libertarian freedom at all. I, th- I think that, um, that uh, we're thrown into conditions that aren't of our own choosing. We're mediated by circumstances that are out of our control, but nevertheless, that doesn't negate our agency. That actually freedom is rearranging the material world within conditions that aren't of our own choosing. So even if we see ourselves acting out this thing and then this mantra that we're going to say, long live the new flesh, and then you pull the trigger and shoot yourself in the head, I don't think that negates Max's freedom in the next moment if we say freedom with square uh, scare quotes that isn't libertarian freedom but a sort of conditional freedom. And so I think that's kind of what's going on. And, is, and what are you defining as libertarian freedom? Libertarian this- freedom is the idea of freedom without coercion, freedom without um, coercion from any sort of outside source. Is generally how it's how it's defined in libertarian freedom. So it doesn't mean that there aren't you can't be influenced, but it means that you're not coerced. Whereas I would argue that actually all freedom is essentially coerced freedom, which then kind of negates really? the idea. So, of freedom. so like like basically, yeah, these extensions of technology, it's so ingrained in our yeah, psyche that yeah. that basically, even though we seem like we have free will and agency, that really we're being forced. By an invisible hand, kind of. Even your desires that you think are your own are are basically 
from outside sources, whether exactly. it be exactly the media, yeah, whether it be the <laughs> exactly. medium or the actual content of what we consume. Exactly, it's hard for yeah, me yeah. to say how much I disagree with that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let me ask yeah, you this: continue. <laughs> what what makes you disagree with that? What are the conditions that make it? No, no. Um, but I, I I get it. I mean, this is I guess this it's is my environment those, I've been in for the last thirty one like, years. Well, it's that like it's like the line to, to come to the, <laughs> it's like the line in the Matrix when Morpheus says, "Do you believe in fate, Neo?" And Neo says, "No, because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life." It's just that it's <laughs> yeah. uh, he doesn't like the idea, and it's as simple as that. Right. Yeah, and, and I think I mean. Yeah, but that's kind of what this the end bit I think is kind of exploring, and it's and it kind of throws it to the audience because he's looking right down the barrel of the camera, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you said that kind of reminded me of another thing in McLuhan is that McLuhan said that the one of the dangers of our new electric media, and you know, he mostly was theorizing based on television. But one of the things that was so interesting about him is he was very prescient in that he. Uh, predicted this thing called the global village, which is essentially the internet, uh, way before the internet ever existed. But he said that one of the big, the biggest things about electric media and why it may lead to violence is that electric media, the nature of it will always, it makes people lose their, their personal identity. And that uh, all violence is, at least to him, is a search for identity. And I think that perhaps we see that with Max Wren in that he literally becomes an automaton in a way in that like we see VHS tapes, pieces of electric media being put inside of him and robbing him of his free will, robbing him of his yeah. individuality. And then quite lit. I mean, in this case, he's programmed to do violence, but I guess you could perhaps uh, extrapolate McLuhan and say that uh, viol- you know, that he's juxtaposing these ideas of identity and violence. See, to me, something saying like that, something so broad, like it, it- technology or television makes people lose their autonomy, whatever. I mean, I would rephrase it as makes weaker minded people <laughs> um, lose their auto- like, like not every, you know, some people watch violent stuff and it just, just uh, it, for entertainment to get off and, and they're not and the, and their psychological makeup isn't making it to where they're losing anything. It's just something to watch. But then, yeah, there are people that it totally affects them. I don't, think, I, think, I don't think that's quite what he's saying. I don't think that he's saying that the content of ourselves in that, like, oh, we all like the same stuff. He's just saying that because electric media is so ubiquitous, it creates a almost homogenous environment, and the environment is what is what essentially programs us. We're programmed by our environment. And, like, I think one of the examples that he points to is how cotton in the South basically created or, or, or had a large influence on Southern culture because it was just a... And so in, in the sense, the medium of whether it be television or the internet, just the very fact that, um, you know, I can talk to Ryan and say, hey, Ryan, have you seen this show? Or that there is a ritual of people watching TV mm-hmm. together. That environment that the medium creates is what creates a more... Yeah, once again, a more homogenous environment. It's not necessarily that like, oh, everybody likes the same thing or everybody has to think the same way, although perhaps it gets to there. But I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. Okay. Yeah, this actually fits really well with the doctrine or the idea of seriality that I talked about earlier in, in Sartre. Um, he talks about the idea of what he calls the indi- indirect gathering. And the indirect gathering for him, he uses the example of sitting before a radio broadcast. And obviously he's writing in the late 50s at this point. So he's talking about sitting before the radio broadcast. In relation to the radio broadcast, you are a passive uh, receiver of information. Marshall McLuhan would call that warm media. He makes a distinction between warm and cool media. McLuhan does. And obviously now I'm confusing my theorists. So seriality is Sartre. McLuhan talks about warm and cool media. Warm media for McLuhan is where you're purely like a receptor of of the thing, right? And what that does is that creates that homogeneity before the object, the collective object, whether it be a radio broadcast or maybe we're in a movie theater or like a top 10 list where you're like, oh, did you see the best Mark Kermode's top 10 films of 2017 or whatever? You know, we look at these lists and before those, I don't mean like before as in temporally, but in standing in relation to those external objects, we are homogenized. Now, that doesn't mean that our reception of those lists doesn't have its own unique spin. Clearly, it does. It's going to have, you know, Ryan's going to receive it differently than Jared is, than I am, than Claire will, than anybody else will, right? But the point is, is that there is a sense in which there's a homogenization of culture in this experience of seriality insofar as our relations are mediated by external objects. And then the problem is, is okay, so we take that and we simplify it and we say, okay, in relation to the radio broadcast, okay, great. But at the same time, we're also Americans. So in relation to the idea of America, 
that is going to homogenize us. And then we say, okay, well, we're living in California. I mean, I'm not, but you guys are. So as Californians, uh, that's another external mediatory influence. And then when you start adding up the millions and infinite number of these mediatory relations, we start to realize how much we are homogenized by these external sources. And and then that is where it becomes interesting is what are the effects that that homogeneity has on social reality? But with that said, then there are thinkers that have come along more recently. Bernard Stiegler and Jonathan Crary come to mind. If you guys are interested, Bernard Stiegler wrote a book called Technics and Time. It's fucking huge, but he's a great theorist and you can read a bunch of his other stuff. Um, it's S-T-I-E-G-L-E-R. He's a French dude. Um, and he's badass because he was in prison and that's how he found philosophy. Um, so he's a badass dude. Um, but then there's Jonathan Crary, who's an America media uh, studies a professor in New York. I can't remember where he is, but he wrote a book called 24-7 that's fantastic. And he talks about how the, the idea that McLuhan perpetuates of this homogeneity gets problematized when we start to realize that not that our media today isn't warm media, but it's actually cold media or cool media, I'm sorry, because that is where we can interact with the media and that we actually are touching and liking and sharing and we're interacting with all of our, our various forms of media. We aren't just sitting there listening to a radio broadcast, but we're listening to a podcast while we're tweeting the guys on the podcast and telling them what we want to listen to and we're liking an Instagram post. And so there is this back and forth relation. So it changes things a little bit. And I'm not sure what effect that has on the idea of homogeneity in relation to maybe heterogeneity, but it definitely complicates things a little bit. Um, another thing I want to mention, so we talked a lot about sexualizing technology and uh, visuals that tie technology to the body, specifically sexual organs. I want to talk about something that I don't know if you guys uh, thought about. There seems to be a slight sexual innuendo between Max and Harlan. Did you guys pick up on that at all? There's a bit where Harlan, like, touches his jacket, and I was like, huh. Yeah. It's at the end when he says, like, you know, I don't work for you for the money or something like that. Right. And then I think this this whole thing climaxes when Harlan is about to at least attempt to reprogram Max by giving him the VHS tape that is truly a breathing organ. There's like a sense of flirtation between the two of them. Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of like, stick his, "Hey, did you?" His, he's about to stick his thing into the other guy's vagina. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but his, even the way that they're looking at each other, he's you know, there's almost like, uh, "Hey, did you uh, take care of uh, Bianca Oblivion? She didn't give you any troubles." And like the kind of, and, and you know, he says, "Hey, what's in the box? It's your head." There's this kind of playful flirtation going on that does almost seem like a a seduction scene, yeah. in a sense. Uh, I didn't really pick up on that. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be he surprised. He came to kill him. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously something very sexual going on in that he has a vagina-like thing in his stomach and then he sticks an organ into it. And, you know, like, yeah, the whole touching your shirt thing. I don't, like, what, what do you think Harlan was expecting when Max calls him at two in the morning to come over to his apartment and <laughs> and take a picture of what's in his bed? And, you well, know, Harlan knew what he was expecting because he knows he's hallucinating because he works for Videodrome. Assuming we know when the hallucinations start and end, yes. But also that he, they have a very close relationship in that Harlan is doing illegal activities at work. You know, there's a, there's a sense of him being a confidant because there's this sense of trust that he could, you know, get Max thrown in jail or whatever, but he doesn't because, you yeah. know, there, there's this closeness to them. They're breaking the law together. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I can't help but see sexuality in every fucking scene of this movie. I mean, it is just dripping with sex and libido and repressed desire and things of that nature. Um, and it's quite problematic, I think, too, in its in its exploration of sex. Um, it's very, I think it's interesting. It's trying to do something quite interesting, but I also think it's really quite problematic. And, uh, but I think it's on every fucking problematic. page. Well, I think that it views sex as purely being like we talked about previously, this idea of jouissance, this idea of like this enjoyment, this libidinal release, right? And mm -hmm. the the more that uh, you're exposed to sex and violence, then the more desensitized you become to being able to reach those peaks of joy. So you need to keep raising the ceiling, right? Which is a problem that we experience in our culture today that where porn is just fucking everywhere and where where largely men then have a distorted understanding through the fantasy of porn of what sex ought to be. And this film 
um, kind of just bathes in that realm without questioning it. And um, I've, I'm really interested in, in Tantra. And one of the things that Tantra explores is this uh, practice of carezza, which is Italian for caress, but it's basically sex without orgasm. And um, there's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful website that's called confidentlovers.com for people that are interested, run by actually a friend of mine who's a sort of sex therapist. Um, and one of the things that, that, that Tantra explores is the idea of sex that isn't just simply about reaching the male orgasm, right? Or even the female orgasm, but in particularly the way that Western culture kind of seems to portray sex is, is just all about the climax. It's all about that dopamine rush. It's all about the peak. And, and, and I think this film is just all about the peaks. It's all about the peak of violence, the peak of sex, the peak of orgasm, the peak of getting there. And, and because you become anesthetized because of your saturation in these peaks of dopamine rushes, you need more and more and more intensity. And I think that's... Video drums about coming then. That's it is. It is. It, in a lot of ways, it is. And, and well, but I, when you but get I disagree of, with you that... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, I disagree with you that there isn't a presence of, of criticizing that idea because that's the whole Barry Convex thing. Barry Convex sees video drums as a way to met out people who, uh, you know, are similar to how you say, you know, pornography is everywhere and it kind of desensitizes us to sexuality or it makes us expect a kind of heightened, almost unachievable level of sexuality. I think that that is what Barry right. Convex is railing against. And depending on how you read the movie, uh, Videodrome is a way to met that out and kind of cleanse society of this need to be stimulated all the time and overstimulated. So once again, there is this balance, I think, in the movie of, you know, do we want to get to this next level of human evolution where, you know, stimulation just breeds needs for more intense stimulation? Or do we, you know, cleanse society of that and, you know, not be so addicted to stimulation? Yeah, well, he's the religious zealot, right? And he's his his problem goes in the other direction. Like Barry's problem is that he wants to cleanse society of the filth rather than trying to find a healthy uh, and uh, an alternative way to experience sexuality. And I think that's one of the things then that that final idea of uh, long live the new flesh allows for is it opens up a new space for a new ontology to emerge where sex isn't just about the dopamine rush. And also it's not about the Barry convex convex. Is that his name? Yeah. It's not convex is sort of like cleansing the world from smut, but rather what the film offers through the exploration of this transformation of the body is this possibility for a complete recreation of the flesh that would allow us to experience what being fleshly means in a different way. That isn't just the smutty way, and it's also not the rejection of the body either. And I think that's where the film is kind of problematic is it, it hints at it. And, and I think it, and, and obviously I'm injecting so much of my own ideas into the ending of this fucking movie. But I think that <laughs> if you think about it that way, that it opens up a space for this new ontology, this new way of being, this new reality, this new social order to emerge. And that's what the new flesh can symbolize. Yeah. So uh, Ryan, I believe he's got some questions picked out for the mailbag. All right. This one is from Roxana. She says, hello, Wisecrack. I just finished watching Old Boy on Netflix. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of foreign films, but I like this one. Some of the blending, transitioning scenes were amazing. The acting was superb and the storyline, well, the storyline was disturbing. I struggled with the first half of the film because I could not figure out what it was about. Was it a comedy, an action film, some type of Saw-like game? But then the pieces started to fit together. The last few minutes of the film were the reveal, uh, where the revealing of things is going on was just genius. Many scenes made me cringe, but also made me laugh. I tried to analyze how I felt at the end of it, sort of surveyed my emotions to see what the film had left me, but I honestly felt disturbed and confused, not so much because of the violence or the incest, Game of Thrones desensitized us from that, but rather because of the thought about how a single incident in your past can trigger a chain of events that can lead you to essentially be a walking dead, a person who is dead inside but is still living to fulfill a single duty. And when that job is done, you can finally die and be free. Like a me-seeks. <laughs> um, I can't wait for the podcast on this film because I definitely need some help understanding it. Love what you guys do. Big fan of Jared and his shaggy hair. Love Roxana. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for the email, Roxanne. I'm really glad that the film uh, impacted you in a way that uh, I was hoping that it would. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the most brilliant things about the movie is that how can such a small thing that he doesn't even remember justify uh, seemingly infinite punishment? And I think that kind of mm. like offends our sense of proportionality, and that's what makes this 
movie so fucking disturbing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I haven't quite been desensitized yet because of Game of Thrones because I haven't watched Game of Thrones, but um to my Neither. shame, to my shame. But um shame. Me, too. me too. I know, I know. But uh but I I, I kind of agree. But with, there's a part in the there's a part in the show where they say shame, shame, so I had to say that. Okay. <laughs> Um, see, see, meta. I, I'm sorry. I, I wouldn't Go get ahead, it. In, inside jokes. I don't get the inside jokes. I'm sorry. Um, but I agree with everything she said. Uh, it, it almost makes me like even hearing her talk about her experience of watching the movie. It makes me want to watch it again. And I just watched it. You know, like it's that <laughs> interesting of a movie for me. So good. All right, let's move on to the next question. This is from Corey. Uh, he says, I just got into your Show Me the Meaning podcast, and I already want to hear more from Austin. <laughs> in the Mother podcast, he brought up Gnostic allegory in film, and I have recognized that Hollywood seems obsessed with this. The Matrix and Pleasantville are almost perfect renderings of the Gnostic Gospels with the full mythological cast. Sophia, Demerge, Jesus, Lucifer, John the Baptist, etc., and the struggles with the corporeal worlds and the higher plane of existence, the Pleroma. Uh, meanwhile, other films touch on these tropes without the complete retelling of the Gnostic dogma. I find the Gnostic stories compelling and uniquely human, and it seems Hollywood does too. What are the roots of Hollywood's fascination and almost obsession of these stories, and how do, you, and how do these stories keep getting retold? Thanks. Yeah, so for people who aren't familiar, um, the canon of the Bible that we have received, it's got 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Um, but the New Testament was, and it depends on who you ask, but let's just say basically that uh, it was de decided on that the canon would be these books over you know, years and, and shit like that. And there were criteria that determined what books would go in the canon. The Catholic Bible is different than the Protestant Bible. The Catholic Bible has something called uh, the Pseudepigrapha, um, which are various other texts that go sort of in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and, uh, and the Apocrypha, again, which are other texts. And then there are these gospels that were written about Jesus and about the disciples and about Mary that take place narratively around the time of the New Testament, but they're referred to as the Gnostic Gospels because there was a sect of Christianity, or it wasn't Christianity at the time, but I guess what we then would call Christianity. There was a, a sect um, in Palestine uh, around the time of the early church that were called Gnostics. And the Gnostics... Um, they the, derives from the word gnosis, which means knowledge in Greek. And the Gnostics had a different way of interpreting the events uh, surrounding Jesus. Um, so there's something called docetic Gnosticism, for example, which basically argued that Jesus wasn't a physical body, but he was a spirit. Um, and then, you know, certain church fathers thought that was heresy because they were like, no, Jesus had to literally be flesh. And so there were debates. So the Gnostic Gospels then were sort of pushed to the periphery because they didn't conform to what the other church fathers who had the majority of power at the time determined would be the acceptable dogmatic way of understanding and interpreting these events. So you have like the gospel according to Thomas um, and uh, and many, many, many others. Um, there was actually one just recently discovered that I think it was like the gospel according to Mary or something like that. But there are dozens of these various texts and they basically give other perspectives on Jesus. Now, why the fuck does Hollywood have an obsession or a fascination with it? I don't know, but I'm I'm curious, and I wonder if it's because, like, someone like Aronofsky, who is Jewish, and he's well-educated, obviously, to an extent, with uh, certain forms of Jewish theology, I wonder if there's something about people who have, like, a, a religious affiliation, and they're interested in religion, but they're not interested in, like, dogmatic organized forms of religion as they've been received, so they're interested in exploring these other themes that sort of surround the, the central ideas. I mean, I, I'm just purely speculating right now, but I wonder if it's because people have a religious bent in Hollywood, but it's like a secular religious bent, if that contradiction of terms makes any sense. And so you'd be more interested in exploring Gnostic uh, theological constructions because they're not so much about the sort of formulated forms of like gays are bad and having sex is bad and drinking is bad, um, which is how some people obviously interpret Christianity, but rather it's much more about a connection with spirituality. It's much more about morality tales or ethical tales or political stories or social morals, things like that. And so I kind of think that there's some richness in these Gnostic tales that aren't that aren't explored as much in the standard religious traditions of the West. 
It could also be that people are like, man, I really want to make sure that my story resonates. Well, what's a story that, uh, you know, created a cult that's, uh, you know, basically dominated the world for thousands of years? The story of Christ. Let's pepper that in. I think it might resonate with people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Superman, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. Just want to remind you guys that we are continuing with our Rick and Morty podcast. We just interviewed our first member of the Rick and Morty writing staff, Brian Weissall. So definitely check that out. We're also continuing to go through uh, all the other two seasons. Also, we've got an episode on nihilism in both Rick and Morty and BoJack Horseman written by Austin's ex-roommate that is actually coming out on Saturday. And we're really excited about it. We're going to be doing an AMA on YouTube for the first hour after the video is posted. So please come out and hang out with us. Ask us questions. It's going to be at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Saturday. Depending on when you're listening to this, it may have already passed. Uh, But this is Saturday, the next day after this is posted, which is likely Thursday night or Friday. So hopefully to see you there. Also want to announce again that next week we're doing Mean Girls. So be sure to check that out. We're going to be doing this podcast weekly now. So be sure to check in weekly. And I want to thank our guests, Ryan and Austin. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Hey, happy to be here. Cool. Well, that just about does it. So thank you guys for listening. Peace. Peace.